You have 24 minutes. Jim Peters is the founder and president of Responsible Hospitality Institute, or RHI, as many people refer to it across the country. Since 1983, RHI, which is a nonprofit organization, has been on the forefront of trends in the hospitality industry, urban planning of nighttime social districts, and approaches to public safety and policing in those districts. Jim himself came up out of the hospitality and entertainment sector uh, and has been referred to uh, as the godfather of America. Nighttime economy. I kind of like that reference. I'm really glad to have this opportunity to talk with you, Jim. Thank you for joining me. Well, it's a great, great privilege to talk to you as well. So, first, nighttime economy. The NTE, you'll see it abbreviated a lot. That's kind of that language kind of came up out of Europe, it seems to me. Uh, nighttime economy, overnight economy. There's a lot of, I talk with a lot of colleagues around the world and they kind of are beginning to back away from the phrase nighttime economy. You tend to use sociable. Uh, cities and sociable economy, social, what language works best for describing what we're talking about? Well, you know, the evolution of this terminology, you know, most people understand nightlife, uh, but in some circles, nightlife is always looked upon as um, a negative. It's something that people don't want, especially as you started to have uh, the growth in mixed use districts where you're bringing residential and and retail and, and office and and nightlife together. Uh, I went to uh, uh, London back probably in the late 90s, early 2000s, and the uh, Association of Town Center Management had had an an award on their program for the nighttime economy. And I had never heard that term before. So I went there and I watched it and I saw them and I thought this is a good way to define the nighttime economy. So I came back and a lot of our work really emphasized that term. But over the years, uh, we began to see that, you know, nighttime economy uh, was a way to segregate it from the daytime economy. And with Merrick Milan coming in and coining the expression, the night mayor, even though we had uh, been doing that kind of work in the 1990s. In fact, Allison Horndon, who's the right. nighttime economy manager for the city of Pittsburgh, worked for me. And she coordinated what was called the Hospitality Resource Panel, which uh, essentially had hospitality, safety and development stakeholders coming together. So so that concept was around, but Mira kind of coined the term and that got popularized. So as we began to think more about what goes on at night, you know, my background in the hospitality industry really spoke to me as really what drove me to be in the hospitality industry, to work in bars and restaurants, open a restaurant, manage a music venue. The satisfaction comes watching people socialize, watching people come together, watching relationships form, Certainly, you know, watching the evolution of how people uh, interact with each other. So I began to think more about this idea of sociability. And there's a, a man who wrote a book, who's wrote a series of books, one of which is the, the history of the Paris Cafe. Hmm. Uh, Scott Hain, and he's done one of our webinars. You might want to talk to him, but sure. you know he talks about the 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 evolution of the cafe society, and so he's been following our work. Him and Ray Oldenburg, who wrote the book The Great Good Place, which right. was uh, later used to to define the third place. You know, you have your home, 
you have your work or your school, and then you have that third place, that gathering place where mm. people get to socialize. So it was actually Scott Hain, when we were talking about what it is that RHI does, he said, you know, you really help cities create a sociable city. So that's really where that term for us came from, was from Scott Hain. And then our conference in San Francisco, we used to do what were called networking conferences. That's when we decided to form a network. We called it the Sociable City Network. Right. We offered a charter membership. We had, oh, I guess over 100 charter members and up, upwards of almost 300 people over the years. And uh, that was really how we began to institutionalize that term, sociable city. Um, and it kind of neutralizes a lot of the discussion uh, because it's it focuses on sociability and not just on drinking, you know, which is what a lot of people see nightlife as. Right. So then just really to kind of summarize it, we always talk about bars and restaurants and nightclubs and hours of operation and all of these other things. And so uh, it really began to galvanize in my mind, you know, that we have to approach it differently than using the licensing laws that were created in 1933 after prohibition. Uh-huh. So in the United and in Canada and Toronto, I, I read how they began to talk more about uh, night venues instead of nightclubs. And so that's how the term venue kind of got into my lexicon. And then as we began to say to people, when you're trying to regulate or create regulations to reduce risk, mm -hmm. you know, what happens is businesses will open as a restaurant, but if the market is there, they'll evolve to become more of an entertainment venue. And so that really creates conflict in policy and licensing enforcement, residential complaints, because there's often no clear differentiation. So that's when we shifted to use the term social venue, okay. because really that's what they're all about. And it's not only alcohol venues, you have coffee shops and sure houses and arts and cultural know, organizations, lots of entities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Art galleries create social events. So, so we began to use the term social venue. And then, you know, we often talk about it's, it's not what you call it. It's what they do and the hours in which they do it. All right. So we have a whole little uh, scenario that we put together that says there are three social enhancers alcohol, music, and people. Okay. And when you look at people, it, there's four life stages, what we call singles, mingles, families, and jingles. Right. <laughs> and each of those uh, life stages have different socializing uh, experiences. Sure. So your singles and mingles, you know, singles being unattached people, generally younger, uh, seeking relationships and mingles, those that have formed relationships, either as partners or social groups, they tend to socialize after 10 p.m. Okay. Most of the time because they're working in the restaurants and the hotels and the retail stores that the other people go out to. So their, their, their night time begins usually at 10 o'clock. And then you have the families and the jingles and families are obvious, but jingles are empty nesters, business travelers, vacationers, tourists. They tend to have more jingle in their pocket, ah. disposable income, but they tend to socialize before 10 p.m. Okay. And so that's what you have to look at. So then you have alcohol, which right. we, we call the lubricant of sociability. And it's been used, you know, a lot of our history, a lot of our technology evolved from, 
you know, being able to create the containers to put the beer in, you know, things that evolved with agriculture. All of that really lends itself to our desire to have alcohol because it, it you know, makes us feel more sociable. And, and at the same time, it can also create risk if it's abused. Right. And then you have music, which we call the heartbeat of sociability yeah. and music surrounds us. And so music by itself isn't a disturbance unless you're trying to sleep at one o'clock in the morning. Right. And so these social enhancers, alcohol, music and people can also become risk factors generally after midnight. OK. So when you're looking at trying to to create structure, you have to allocate your policy and resources, not by labeling a specific venue, but by defining when it's going to operate, who its clientele are, and what is it that they're going to offer. And so policy has to evolve to more modern times and not just regulate based on solely on alcohol with laws that were written in 1933. So I'm a city worker. In a city employee, I'm in the, working in the area of public safety or tourism or public improvement districts, and I'm in Memphis or Cincinnati or Tucson or someplace. What what do what two or three messages would you want to get in front of these people who might be interested in establishing a nighttime office or to to refocus their city's energy on the sociable economy of their nights where they've not been doing it, where it's all, you know, it's all shattered and siloed in municipal structures, which we see a lot. What What's the most important message you want to tell to those people who might be in the city going, you know, we got to fix this? Well, I think prior to COVID, that was a little bit more challenging. Ah. But what COVID did was it made people aware not only just of the the role that not not only the loss of places for people to socialize you know when when restaurants and bars and nightclubs all had to close down all of these social venues closed down right. not only did we lose those gathering places right. you know that are so important to our mental health and our 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 our, our well being it was also recognized as an important economic engine yeah. in terms of not just the the jobs and the revenue and the taxes that are created by the venues, but all of the those ancillary uh, businesses that exist to support them. So when you th talk about the nighttime social economy, there's also a daytime economy sure. that supports those businesses. So when you think about the beer distributors and the and the food distributors and the linen companies and the glassware companies and the equipment companies, the graphic artists that design the menus and the ads, you think about the musicians and the sound engineers, the lighting engineers. If you start to consolidate you know, if, if you go into a restaurant and you look at everything that's right in front of you, there is a company that sells those products and services. Sure. And then because of the public health risks, you have regulations that require certain standards in the kitchen with ANSEL systems for fire sure. safety or pest control to reduce rodents and other uh, insects. And then you have trash and trash management. And because you're dealing with organic waste, you have odor and odor management issues. And then now you have the whole recycling and composting requirements that some cities are putting into place. Right. So you be, be, 
what's happening is you're beginning to recognize that there's so many tangential aspects to how people socialize in terms of impacts, but even more so when you lost the uh, restaurants and the nightlife in New York City, there was no tourism. And tourism is a major economic driver. Um, when, what you found is is now you have the shift to people working from home. Right. And so you have these commercial office districts that they're not going to bring anybody back to the office unless they have places to go out during the day. Right. Whether they be a coffee shop for coffee, coffee in the afternoon or happy hour place for people to socialize after work or places to, to entertain people for, for business purposes at lunch. So we see the integration of how people socializing creates the destination for tourists, for business operations. And in many cases, there was a trend beginning in the early 2000s of colleges and universities building campuses downtown. Right. In order to support the creative economy. So you're going to you're going to create those uh uh, spontaneous places where the academics interact with the people in the industry to figure out uh, solutions. So, so right. this, the, the nexus of, of people socializing has so many interconnected factors that cities have to begin to say, okay, how do we make this work? And that there's not one perspective or organization because everything is so integrated. Public safety, you need mobility, you need right. licensing, you need, you know, the hospitality industry, you need the culture, you need the community perspectives. So you have to create the method by which you can integrate these stakeholders, not only to recognize the importance, but how they have to work together. Well, it's an entire ecosystem. I think a lot of people don't think about until they started losing one of the legs of the chair and then how I was making the rest of the chair wobbly. If a city wants to, what does the city want to accomplish when they contact RHI? And and then what do you do? What, how does RHI then go work with the community? I mean, I'm following now your work with what, Savannah? Yeah, we're going to start working with Savannah, Des Moines, right. uh, Myrtle Beach. We're just finishing up St. Augustine. So we have uh, these the cities. So so typically people contact us for one of two reasons. One is right now in particular, most of the contacts we have are because of shootings ah. and youth in public space that are being disruptive or viewed as being disruptive. And there's right. often a racial overtone to that. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so that's why they originally call us to fix the problem. And so, you know, we'll come in and and basically say some of these issues are societal issues, you know, but you have to have uh, set up systems that can work towards reducing that risk. And you have to move beyond seeing police as a solution to public safety problems, um, because right now police departments are understaffed and they can't recruit more people to become police officers for two reasons. And Daryl Stevens brought up one which I hadn't even thought about when we were in D.C. Right. It was formerly with the Major Cities Chiefs Association. But he said, you know, the, the demographic, the under 25 year old age group now is smaller than in recent years. Correct, Gen Z. Mm-hmm. And so that's the uh, population that would most likely be recruited to become police officers. So you have a smaller pool. I hadn't thought about that. 
Yeah. And then you have the retiring officers, uh, the older officers, and then you have people who read the news and don't want to be in the situations of conflict or being videotaped, whatever they do. You know, so there's a resistance to becoming a police officer because it's not as it once was in terms of a good job and a good career. So police departments now are becoming challenged with being able to respond to the growing nighttime social economy and the risks associated with, especially when you have states that have opened up uh, their gun laws so that you have public carry is is a a more um, common feature. And when you put young males together with alcohol carrying weapons uh, with a highly charged sexual environment, um, let's just think what could happen in that situation. <laughs> yeah. What could go wrong? Uh, right. And so when that seems to be a reason why a lot of people are contacting the RHR right now and to help us fix this problem. But when, when you do uh, make an arrangement with a city to provide the, the assessment and create a plan for them, whether it's this issue or whether they want to maximize their um, sociable economy. I mean, what do you do? Site visits? How, how does that work, Jim? Well, basically, you have to start with the premise that what they're looking to do is change or transform their current situation. I see. So you can't change unless you see what it is that you want to be. So it's easy to say we want to get rid of these problems. Right. But. You know, these problems exist because of the interrelatedness of a lot of factors in your community. You know, did anybody decide, like in Pittsburgh, when we worked on Carson Street, why you would want to put 20,000 people in venues at night with narrow sidewalks, no parking and in close proximity to residents? You know, and if somebody were to say, let's build an arena with 20,000 people in the same neighborhood with those same infrastructure challenges, they'd say no way. Right. So a lot of times it's more poor planning rather than lack of police that undermine the current situation. And then within that situation, you may have limited ability to take action with some of the problematic businesses because of conflicts with state regulations, inability of the local authorities to create their own policies that might better manage their risk. So you have to begin with the process of saying, this is a transformative process that you have to begin. Okay. And what you need are what we call a transformation team, transformation leaders who are big picture thinkers within their specific area of expertise or experience and who want to work towards creating a new vision that really is built around recognition of the importance of sociability and the social economy and ways in which they can better plan it and manage it to avoid conflict. So you start with what we call six transformation leaders that represents hospitality, culture, safety, um, development, uh, community, and uh, city administration. Okay. And so you, you, you begin with six of those leaders who not only have the vision, but access to resources and contacts. 
And then we talk about our building blocks. You know, we say, okay, what do you want to accomplish? Most cities want to enhance the vibrancy of their social economy. They want to have safety. And then they want to what we call plan for people in terms of mobility and quality of life. So then in order to do that, you have to build your local teams, what we call action teams, within those three primary areas. But we break it up into six areas that we focus on as measures. So just as an example, with safety, you have public safety, which is the licensing, permitting, policing, compliance, all of those components and then you have venue safety, which is what right. happens on the internal aspects of the business. So with that, we define a vision. We say, what's missing in your city? What do you need to do to get to that vision through these six particular areas? Because if you're not planning your mobility and getting people out of your district quickly at closing time, then you're going to have not only increased risk of violence, but also disturbances to neighbors and property damage through vandalism or public urination and other things. So if you're not planning systematically about getting people in and out of your district efficiently, you're going to exacerbate all of the other issues that you want to fix. Right. So that's really the approach that we take. And through the process, we could end up like we just finished in St. Augustine with 115 different people. Wow that were involved in one way or the other. And we've added a new, uh, several new components. One is a women's focus group. Because to address women, women's safety? and Well, not just women's safety, but also just basically what women want in, in, in places to socialize. And, and, um, and that's been quite effective uh, in really making people see things from that lens of a woman. You know, a man walking down the street. Yeah doesn't really see any risk, uh, but a woman walking down the street is always looking for ex escape routes or, you know, where they might be threatened or when they walk into a venue, they want to look to see, is it overcrowded? Am I going to be harassed? Are there security staff available? Does it look like there are people who are intoxicated? So, you know, are there clean restrooms? So the more you create an experience that's safe for women, the more likely women will go out and they are becoming an increasingly important part of the economy because they're increasingly part of professional uh, uh, jobs and they have more disposable income and they tend to make the decisions for men. Um, you know, if men and women are going to go out, it's the women who decide where they're going to go. If men are going to go out by themselves, they'll just go to a sports bar and drink beer and, and, Watch the TV screens and yeah, yell a lot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. So, so that's very, very helpful to know that if somebody wants, they they feel this kind of this disconnect in their own community, and they they're having little problems. And but what they may not realize is what they need is a plan. They need a vision, and that's where RHI can come in and help guide them towards what that can be. Jim, this is very helpful. I'm 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 appreciative of your time. Anyone wanting to gain gain more knowledge and more networks in this whole sector. They could learn more at sociablecity.org. And you're also at Sociable City um, on Facebook and Twitter, and then the Responsible Hospitality Institute on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. I believe. Jim, I'm I'm very appreciative of your time. I love how you approach a city from almost a counselor's perspective, mm -hmm. uh, because that's a lot of times what cities need most.
This has been Season 1, Episode 5 of 24 Minutes from 24 Hour Nation at 24hournation.com.